You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Hosanna is a one-word prayer. Hosanna means, let us be saved now. It's a prayer for healing. And on that first Palm Sunday, it's what the crowds were shouting. Sort of ironic the way the gospel writers tell the story of Palm Sunday. For all of them seem to suggest the crowd who cried out this great prayer for healing weren't looking well enough to see that it was being answered. Because what they shout on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, turns by Friday to be cries, crucify him. And it makes me wonder, in what ways do we offer prayers for which we're looking uh, for the wrong kinds of answers. If we wanted to, to, if they wanted to see what it was that Jesus was doing in response to their cry for salvation, they were not to look for a military conqueror. They were to look for a cross. It's kind of you know if you think about it, somebody probably nudged the outside of that crowd and said, "Wow, hey, what's this all about?" And they would say, "Well, it's just this guy that they call the Son of David. He's been doing amazing things, miracles." For the last three years, and his teaching is more profound than that of anybody we've ever seen. And we just think that maybe this is David coming to liberate Jerusalem like he did in the old days, thousand years ago. They go, wow, this is amazing. Goosebumps on the spine. And then he might ask a question, well, where are the soldiers? To which someone said, well, they're probably just around the next bend. They're probably just down the hill. I'm, I'm sure they're coming. There must be countless soldiers. There must be legions of armies to take down the Romans. But of course, you know, it's just Jesus riding on a donkey. And he will conquer not by a sword, but by a cross. Do we miss the answer to our prayers because we are measuring our health wrong? I want you to think about that question as we look at a, a, a story today about ancient Israel and the way that they measured their health and how it was that they missed the grace of God upon which they were called to trust. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, verses 15 through 17. You'll find that on page 263 if you're looking at a pew Bible, 263. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 15 through 17. This is a prayer. I mean, really, I'm... Uh, We'll be keeping in view the whole of chapter 24, but the heart of it, the part you're about to read, is a prayer that David offers. And I want to suggest to you that's perhaps one of the most profound, if not the very most profound, prayer in the whole Bible. So if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together and catch David in an act of healing prayer. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from that morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 of the people died, from Dan to Beersheba. But when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented concerning the evil and said to the angel who is bringing destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was then by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was destroying the people, he said to the Lord, I alone have sinned, and I alone have done wickedly, but these sheep 
what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Before you close that book, and before what you just read drifts into distant memory, I want you to think about verse 17 again. Listen to David praying. Here's what he says. I alone have sinned, and I alone have done wickedly. But these sheep, meaning the people of Jerusalem, what have they done? Let your hand, God, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. This is one of the greatest prayers ever uttered. I want to suggest to you that it is not just the prayer of David, but it is somehow mysteriously the prayer of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I'm going to do what I can to give you a little bit of insight into what's really a challenging passage. I mean, if you're in a small group this week, you're going to look at this passage together, and good luck. Uh, This is a hard one. It raises many questions. But I want to try to make this as simple as I can. And so before I risk confusing all of us, let me give you the point of my message right up front this morning. This is what I want you to take home. In Jesus, God became sick so that you can become healthy. And the call is, therefore, to measure your health by him, by Jesus. In Jesus, God became sick to make you healthy, so measure your health by no other metric but Jesus. This prayer is the heart of worship. This prayer is recorded here at the end of the story of David. This is the last Uh, of the stories of David in the Bible. It's here because it depicts the greatness of David. This is David's masterpiece, this prayer. And it's here because here at the end of David's story, we are about to enter in his son Solomon's story in 1 Kings chapter 1, and Solomon's first desire will be to build the temple, and he will build the temple on this location where David prays. It's the threshing floor of a man named Aruna, a Jebusite, which means somebody who lived in Jerusalem before the Israelites were there. And David will buy this bit of land as an act of worship, and and it'll be because David does that that Israel will have a temple on this location. So I think this story is important to the ancient Israelite because it gives them the meaning of the worship that they are to do in this sacred site. This is its first story here. It's healing prayer. This is healing worship. This is what worship ought to be. We hear it from the lips of the servant king, David. Now, This story goes like, let me just give you a real quick uh, thumbnail sketch of this story. David takes a census in Israel. He doesn't count people. He counts people who could be warriors, people to wield the sword, we read. He's given Joab his general orders to go out from Dan to Beersheba, that's from north to south, and count all the people who could be in the army, could be conscripted and sent abroad to fight. Joab comes back, and no sooner does Joab come back, and he reports these numbers, by the way. I think the numbers are too large in this translation. The the word for 1,000 in Hebrew is the same word for military unit. I know that sounds odd, but 
when you read 70,000 people perished, as you just read, I think it's more likely that we're to translate 70 military units suffered casualty. Population figures don't quite match up if you don't translate that when Joab's numbers come back. That's very likely, could be wrong, but it's very likely that what, what Joab is reporting is not just people, but, but um, military units. People who could wield the sword. No sooner does Job come back with the numbers than David falls on his knees before the Lord. He says, oh my gosh, he's stricken of conscience. I've done wrong. Should never have offered, taken that census. And he repents. God sends a prophet named Gad. Oh my Gad comes. And uh, he's a seer. And he brings the word of the Lord. And he says to David a very strange thing. He says, David, God's going to bring judgment on Israel. Uh, because, you see, David has repented, but Israel has not yet repented. And so, uh, so that they can come to an awareness of God's grace, there will be one of three things, and these three things are, descri- are described to David, and David is given the horrible task of choosing which one of these three, three things uh, an angel of death will do to Israel. And uh, David picks, he picks the pestilence, infectious disease comes, and, and affects, I think, principally the potential soldiers in Israel until this plague comes to Jerusalem and then here at the threshing floor of Aruna, David on his knees offers this great prayer for healing worship. Now, this is an odd story, but I want to suggest to you uh, that God is doing what he's doing out of a holy love that you and I can hardly understand. You may be like me and ask the question, why should we care for a God who heals if it's the same God who sends the sickness? I mean, is this not as troubling? But what I want to propose this morning is that the sickness God sends at this moment in Israel's history is a relatively superficial sickness. And that God sends a relatively superficial sickness because he wants to heal a deep sickness. And that deep sickness is the absence of God in the life of a beloved people. See, Israel measures its health wrong. That's what the census revealed to to David. There were three great problems in the ancient world uh, any nation would face. Starvation, invasion, and infection. I, I think there's the same three great problems with which we wrestle as well today. Wealth, power, and health. Starvation was really an economic problem. Invasion is a a problem of of disempowerment. And infection is a problem of health. And so we might pause just to ask ourselves for a moment, how do we measure health in our own lives? Do we not go counting? I don't know if we think about it as a census, but it's very much about the numbers. We watch numbers with uncanny interest. We follow economic numbers, our wealth. Things like the interest rate, return on investment, our paycheck, how's it coming in this week, the IRA balance, we check with obsessive compulsion again and again and again. Or we take a census on our power in life. We look at the numbers and count missiles and titles and influence and control. Or we measure our health, and there are all kinds of numbers for this, of course, our cholesterol levels, our age, our PSA, our waistlines, our weight, But are we measuring our health, our real health, our deep health, when we measure just these things? 
and not something more profound. Let me share with you quickly, to get you a little bit deeper into the story, three elements of the story, the problem, the responsibility, and the hope. Uh, The problem is this, Israel's not trusting the one who really loves them, not trusting God. That's the problem, trust. The responsibility, Uh, David is the one who gives the order, but I want to suggest to you that it's all of Israel who's responsible for this. And the hope, the hope is to trust, fall into the hands of the Lord, for he is merciful. Let me go back and just review that for, for very quickly. The problem, uh, lack of trust. This is a, a unique nation in the history of, of all nations. God had chosen Israel, and he says, I will be your defender. When they start counting soldiers, they've forgotten that, haven't they? Uh, more than that, they're not only thinking defensively, uh, they're trying to build a standing army, which has already begun to be built, but also an army that can be projected into their neighbors. This is an offensive capability that they're beginning to develop. And and this is to forfeit the very purposes of their life because God said, I have blessed you to bless the nations. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When you worship, you will tell a story of my grace that will be so compelling and beautiful that the nations will come flocking to you and they'll, and they'll be blessed. I'll bless them through blessing you. <laughs> your role is not to kill your neighbors. God never intended that his people would be violent people. They would be pacifists in the world. And so this is absolutely wrong. The, the kind of insecurity that would prompt the nation to start numbering its soldiers the desire to reach out into their neighboring countries and fight and destroy and pillage and plunder is absolutely antithetical to God's plan for them and for the world. That's the problem. They're not trusting in their God. The responsibility. Who's to blame? Well, David, yes. David was wrong to offer this census. He repents But I want to suggest to you that David wouldn't have done this if David were the only one who wanted this done. Even our own president in the Middle East this week, I don't know if you caught this, President Obama, he said, political leaders will never take risks if the people don't push them. And believe it or not, that's true even in a monarchy. There was a culture, there was a popular mandate in David's day to be like the other nations. That's why they wanted a king in the first place. They pushed Samuel and said, we want a king. And Samuel said, oh, God is your king. He said, no, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. And so Saul and then David are made king in Israel. And now you can bet that the people are pushing their king, David, to be like the other nations because... As we've already read, in the spring of each year, the other nations always send their kings and their warriors out into the field looking for opportunities to plunder and to enrich themselves at the expense of their neighbors. No, it's the people who are responsible for this. David is just the guy who gives the order. And the hope. It's interesting, uh, why would God ask David, which of these three problems do you want? He, he, he lists for them the three great problems of the ancient world. Starvation, invasion, infection. You can have a famine for three years. You can have uh, an invasion for three months. And you can have an infection for three days. Um, probably gets more and more intense as uh, each of the time limit gets shorter, but the impact gets worse. David surprisingly says, give me the infection. You say, why would he do that? Why the disease? Well... 
uh, he tells us in verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Oh, these are all awful options. He says, but let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into human hands. Do you see what he's getting? He's, he's finally understanding the power of God's love, God's mercy in his life. The, the guy who was <laughs> trying to fall into the power of human hands when he was numbering the army now says, I realize the, how wrong that was. And now I want nothing but to fall in the hands of God's mercy, even when God's judging us, even when he's sending superficial sickness. I realize that what he's after is deep health in our lives. The pestilence. You see, the, the, the famine would, um, would make them economic slaves to their neighbors. They didn't have enough grain, then they would have to start importing, and they would be at the mercy of their neighbors. Uh, the military is kind of intuitive. If they were invaded for three months, then the neighbors again would come in power and would rape and despoil and kill in Israel. Either one of those options would meant that David would, would have to look at human beings and would be subject to them and be in their hands day after day. And David says, I want to be in the hands of the Lord. Even though the plague seems much more disastrous, he chooses that option. He's learning to trust. I, I think God gives him the choice so that David can make this decision very consciously. I want to be in the hands of the Lord when things are tough. I can trust him. That's the hope. How do you measure your, your health? Some of us are so healthy, all the numbers just look great, right? We may not even know that there's a deeper issue in our lives that God is after. When trouble comes, then we're all aware of, of that. The story of somebody who comes to a physician, the physician says, what can I do to help you? The patient says, well, it's my memory. I just can't remember things like I used to. The physician says, well, how long has this problem been going on? The patient says, what problem? Right? We don't even know what our problem is sometimes. Jesus, the great physician, can put his finger on our lives for the deepest of health. And the Bible says that the primary, that the primary problem, dis-ease in my life and in yours, is dislocation from God. It's a failure to trust the one who loves me and you more than anyone else in the world will ever love us. David's prayer is a prayer for true health. And it's the prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer uh, that Jesus offers for us on the cross. Look again at verse 17. I alone have sinned, David says, and I alone have done wickedly. Now we know that's not the case. Verse 1 of chapter 24 has already told us the Lord was angry with all of Israel. Not just David. The whole culture had turned aside. But David takes credit for it all. He says, I, I alone have, have sinned. I alone have done wickedly. Blame me. Hold me responsible. But these sheep, the people of Israel and Jerusalem, these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house, which is against my descendant. And this is the great servant king, David pointing to the greatest servant king, Jesus Christ. This is David's masterpiece. And this is what worship will be all about for the Israelites in the temple. Every time they come and they offer sacrifice in this place, they will remember this prayer of David's, that there is someone sent from God who takes responsibility for my sin, who takes my judgment upon themselves that I might live and be set free 
The important thing isn't what prayers you and I offer when we're in this space. It's the prayer that Jesus offers on our behalf when we're in this space. Worship is not self-expression. Worship is divine expression. It's the expression of self that God gives us in Jesus Christ who has forgiven us. That's why we tell the story of, of Jesus every time we come in this place. We sing the story and we depict the story, not just in a worship service, but in all of life. It's all about the depiction of the grace of the great servant King Jesus who lives in us as we have faith in him and trust in him. Jesus was, in the words of the Apostle Paul, made to be sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that's exactly what David's praying. Let me be reckoned the sinner, so that they may be reckoned righteous. Jesus is the one made to be sin, even though he never sinned. So this prayer of David's is the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but thine. Not my life, but theirs. This is the prayer of Jesus on the cross when he hangs there for our judgment, not his. This is the prayer of Jesus when he comes to Thomas the doubter three days later, resurrection glory. He says, Thomas, do you see my hands? Do you see the wounds? Do you now know that you can trust me because I love you? I've given my life for you, David. This is the prayer of Jesus now ascended to the right hand of the Father who intercedes on your behalf and says, whatever they've done, all of their mistakes, all of their weaknesses, all of their brokennesses, Lord, don't look at that. Look at me. Let me be the one. Jesus is the good shepherd who does not run before death itself, but gives himself a sacrifice of atonement for you and for me. God became sick to make you healthy. There's a story that reminds me of this uh, story uh, written by O. Henry. It's a short story. It's called The Last Leaf. Some of you know that story. And there are two principal characters in the story. They both live in an old, broken-down apartment building in Greenwich Village, New York. The first character is named Johnsy, and she's counting in sickness. And the other story is named Berman. And he is a, an old man who's got a failed career as an artist. He's over 65 years old. He lives in poverty. And he's been only able to make money sitting as a model for artists. He has in the corner of his house, one uh, corner of his room, one easel with one canvas that is absolutely blank. He tells everybody he knows, I'm going to paint a masterpiece someday. I'm going to paint a masterpiece someday. But in 25 years, he's never been able to put a first stroke, never been able to start. Upstairs one day, as um, Johnsy lay in bed sick, she's talking to her roommate. And Johnsy's looking out the window. <clears throat> she's got pneumonia. It's November, and the wind and the rain are pelting on the window. Through the window, she sees a wall across the alley. It's a brick wall, and on the wall is a vine. It's an ivy vine, and as it's fall, the leaves are beginning to drop from the branches one by one, and somehow Johnsy gets in her mind that when the last leaf falls, her life will come to an end. And so she's counting. Four, 
three. And her roommate says, what are you doing, dear Johnsy? She says, well, when the last leaf falls, I must go too. I've known that for three days. When it gets down to one, one leaf left hanging on, barely hanging on. Night falls. And this is the night Johnsy is fairly certain she will not wake up. As it happens, she does wake up in the morning. And she looks out the window, and the leaf is still there. It persists there on the vine through the day and through the next night. The leaf hangs on unaccountably, this one leaf to the branch, until Johnsy has time to recover. And then word comes from her roommate that old Berman passed away. Yeah, pneumonia. Johnsy's roommate brings the news. It's odd. He was ill only two days. The janitor found him the morning of the first day in his room downstairs, helpless with pain. His shoes and clothing were wet through and icy cold. They couldn't imagine where he had been on such a dreadful night. And then they found a lantern, still lighted, and a ladder that had been dragged from its place and some scattered brushes and a palette with green and yellow colors mixed on it. And look out of the window, dear, at that last ivy leaf on the wall. Didn't you wonder why it never fluttered or moved when the wind blew? Ah, darling, it's Behrman's masterpiece. He painted it there the night the last leaf fell. Behrman painted on the glass this leaf that saved Johnsy's life. And it cost him his own. Behrman's masterpiece was a masterwork of service. And so this is David's masterpiece. And it points us to the masterwork of our servant and Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only prays this prayer, but who answers it for you and for me. We ought to measure our health now, not by any of the numbers that our culture uses, but by him. You and I now can have deep health in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful week to hear that news as we travel through this week towards the cross of Jesus Christ. May we remember that he is our health no matter what we're going through. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you don't yet know Jesus. Maybe you haven't yet made that decision to say yes to Jesus, to confess with your lips that Jesus, the risen one, is your Lord. What a great week to do that. You can walk away from Easter Sunday. You can walk away from this Sunday knowing you belong to Jesus Christ and have eternal life. He doesn't come to judge. He comes to save. And God doesn't just make us healthy. He's healing the world. That was Israel's call, and that's our call today as the church of Jesus Christ. The great servant King Jesus is at work through those who believe that he's Lord and who serve in his name. I want to close by introducing you to a woman I've recently met through uh, Mark Laberton, who, who was the pastor at First Presbyterian Church, Berkeley. And he mentioned Tinley, Ireland, a delightful young woman. And you can hear some of her testimony on the web Tinley, Ireland. She came to faith in Jesus Christ when she was a, a young student at Berkeley. She was reading Dante and came to believe truly that she was loved greatly by God and that this was the most important thing about her life and about all life, God's great love. And she began to trust him. She began to live as a witness and she began to live as a servant. One day she was walking across Sproul Plaza, this place that had been so lively during the 60s with controversy, continued to have controversy this particular week. A group of students had 
assembled for what they called Islamofascism Week. Kind of an ugly debate around politics in the Middle East that surfaced the worst in both sides, in every side. And in the context of this, Tinley Ireland thought, I don't think everybody's looking at the right thing. She went to the microphone to share just a brief word of testimony about her faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the editor of the newspaper was there, and the next morning, the editor of the newspaper would tell the story of what happened that prior day, and he would write the final two paragraphs of his article about Tinley, Ireland, and I'd like to read them to you. He says, I can conclude only by ceding the floor to my friend Tinley, Ireland, who gave, for my money at least, the best speech of the evening. Just as the sun set, shining right into her face, she stood up on the steps of Sproul Hall on the same, on that same consecrated spot where earlier in the day the fear-based community had shouted itself hoarse about the people over there who are just waiting, waiting to get us. She stood there and told us about her faith. She talked about how the hardest part of following Christ was to love. Now, not just her friends, but her enemies too. To stop having enemies at all. To feel that universal pulse of humanity, that spark of the divine that flows through all of our veins. At the end, she asked who in the crowd didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Most hands went up. Mine did. She smiled. And as the light faded, she simply and truly said, I love you. I've been on the receiving end of a few punches in my life, but nothing ever hit me that hard. I don't know exactly what kind of politics or religion or philosophy that is, but whatever it is, where can I sign up? Let's pray. God, you have signed us up in Jesus Christ for deep hell. And though we travel through superficial challenges, Lord, you have offered a prayer to take our troubles, to take our wounds, that we might be liberated, that we might be healed in Jesus Christ. Grant today faith, first faith for those who hear you speaking to them, perhaps, but renewed faith for all of us. And we pray that as we move with you through this holy week, you will give us a fresh taste of the health and resurrection life of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.